Welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast with Jacob Ayers, providing actionable content to help you along your journey to financial freedom through real estate investing. As the premier asset class, real estate has helped ordinary people just like you amass fortunes. The benefits of passive income from real estate investing will allow you to live a life you want. And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers. Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 379. Hey, welcome back. I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. This week's guest is Spencer Gray. Spencer is the president and founder of Gray Capital LLC, a multifamily investment firm. Had a great conversation with Spencer today on the show. We talk about all things multifamily investing, how he got started, and how you can solve the dilemma of you don't know what you don't know when getting started in the world of multifamily investing. We had a great time, so let's go ahead and jump right into this week's episode with Spencer Gray. All right, today I welcome on the show Spencer Gray. Spencer, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show this morning. Hey, Jacob, I really appreciate you having me. It's a pleasure being here. Yeah, definitely. Well, Spencer, before we get into all things real estate, let's kind of start with my favorite question lately, and that's your why. Yeah. Let's let me know kind of why you do what you do, why real estate, what drives you. Let's start there. You know, honestly, you know, there's a lot of, you know, good reasons to say why. I mean, a lot of kind of sub reasons, you know, family is a big one and time. But really, if I kind of sum it down, boil it all down, distill it, it's really freedom and autonomy and the ability to have choices in one's life and really to be able to do what we want to do and not be burdened by, you know, the outside forces and really just to take, you know, full control, you know, over my life, you know, so my family, we can do whatever we want. And you know that's why I'm passionate about and really started you know syndicating projects is to help others really kind of just take more control over their life and create you know as much autonomy as we can in uh, this crazy world we live in today. Man, I wish we could mic drop there. What an awesome answer! Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. You know, obviously freedom is a big reason and pillar of this show here, the real yeah. estate way to wealth and freedom. So yeah, it definitely resonates with the audience members there. When do you feel like you kind of got that fire inside you? Have you always had it from an early age? Did one day something click? Yeah, I've always had it, you know, with me. I think for a while, and I, I think I got that, you know, from my parents. I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. I, I know you did too. Just reading a little bit about you, and yeah. so watching my parents, you know, start a small business and kind of grow it to you know a medium sized business, and the freedom that it allowed them, and the prospect of. You know, working for somebody else and kind of the mercy of you know somebody else really controlling you know my time and my life and what I want to do, and then also just seeing all of the you know abilities and again just you know resources you can build around your life by you know having a business. So I knew I always wanted to have my own business. I just didn't know what I wanted to really do, and so it's kind of been with me for a while. You know, I still I had plenty of jobs. I've you know worked as a freelancer. I mean, I've you know, started multiple businesses in multiple industries trying to kind of figure out what that path was. I don't know if it really kind of hit me until my really mid-20s about what it really meant, but it has kind of always been there and kind of in the back of my head as a direction. 
When you grew up, were your parents the ones that encouraged you to kind of take risks and explore that entrepreneurial side of things? Or were they the ones that wanted you to kind of go out, get an education, get a good, stable day job, something that they didn't maybe have? Yeah. You know, this is something I didn't appreciate when I was younger, but my parents, and I'm just unbelievably fortunate for this, that, you know, my parents, they encourage education, but they were very clear with me that, you know, going to college isn't going to, you know, make the life that you want. It's, you know, going to college, you can, you know, neither of my parents graduated from college. They both went, but they said, you know, yeah, you can make a lot of good connections. You can really learn how to socialize and interact with people and learn a lot of life skills, but you're not going to go to school and then come out and make money. That's not going to make what you do. And in fact, you know, most people who go through college and they get a secondary degree, they're going to end up working for a lot of the people who end up not going to college or drop out halfway through college. So, I mean, they always, you know, made education important, but it was much more about, you know, what you do with your experiences and your knowledge and really kind of, and then in terms of taking risks, yeah, I was kind of brought up knowing that there's kind of two different types of people, those who take risks and are able to get out of their comfort zone and then others who really kind of stay in that lane. And again, I talked to so many people who, you know, realize this later in life and so I really didn't understand how fortunate I was to kind of be brought up in a little bit more independent and entrepreneurial, you know, family and with a mindset like that. Yeah, that's awesome. A really fortunate kind of perspective that your parents instilled in you from an early age. So really cool there. Tell us about, you know, what that materialized into, you know, you, it doesn't, doesn't sound like you kind of went straight into real estate. You've done some other things. So tell yeah. us about how you kind of got your start in the entrepreneurial world. Yeah. And, it's funny. So I kind of did start in real estate, but by accident, and I didn't keep going into real estate. So I got roped into flipping a house. When I was 18 years old, a, a buddy kind of brought me in and it wasn't that successful a project. It was like right before the great financial crisis. And I did that and I didn't continue to do it, but it kind of, it planted the spark that, okay, real estate is this option. And it's this way that, you know, it's just, it's another option. But I was really passionate about uh, media production and music. And so I went to school for really to be like a recording engineer and a music producer. They're really studying, you know, audio engineering and music production. So I wanted to build a recording studio, produce music. And I was really letting my passion drive me rather than kind of my business sense. I had no idea how I was ever going to make any money. And it wasn't until I got out of school and you know, I was working in recording studios all over New York City and trying to do just trying to make it work that I realized there's no, I'm never going to be able to make well, really a living and provide the life that I want to doing this. And so I ended up starting another business. I saw these craft breweries opening up and I said, well, you know, there's got to be some disruption going on with all these small little breweries. I mean, I learned that they were having a really hard time sourcing the hops for beer that, you know, makes uh, IPAs bitter and hoppy because it gives beer their flavor. And so I uh, got on a plane, flew out to Yakima, Washington, where they grow the majority of the hops in the United States and most of the hops in the world and started kind of just knocking on uh, hop farmers doors and seeing if we could kind of put some sort of relationship together and started contacting craft brewers and brokered hops and hop products for a couple of years, end up being the largest um, hop distributor and hop broker in the Midwest. or we're the fastest growing hop distributor in really the country. And eventually we sold that business because we were successful, but we didn't see, it wasn't necessarily scalable and we didn't see some long-term prospects. And while we were in the process of selling that business, kind of real estate kept coming back to me. And I had been flipping houses a little bit on the side, 
but I really started educating myself on buy and hold real estate, multifamily. And then I really just focused on, okay, multifamily, it's the most scalable real estate investment vehicle. And I just kind of dove all in, started networking. And after we sold the hops business, Sugar Creek Hops really kind of never turned back and have been working full-time in multifamily ever since. It's a pretty exciting journey, I'm sure. Tell us a little bit about that parlay into the multifamily world. What did that look like for you? Did you start small? Did you start big? Did you start with partners, with your own cash? Yeah. Get into those details. So at first, with my wife and I, she had started the hops business with me. I'm wanting to start this real estate business. And we were going to... The idea was we were going to do it all on our own. You know, we had some money from the hops business. You know, we were going to raise some... Try to raise a little bit of money from friends and family. Um, but, you know, we never bought a, an apartment building. So we really didn't know... <laughs> What we really what we were doing, we kind of knew all the basics. We'd read all the books. You know, I was just consuming myself on bigger pockets and podcasts and everything. But it wasn't until we really we went to a lender because we had kind of we had this idea that we were going to pursue HUD two twenty three F financing. We mm-hmm. thought it was just sounded really interesting. We met with this lender that our CPA connected us with, and he was like, "Yeah, no, guys, it's a great program. The deal that you brought me, we would love to lend on it, but we can't lend to you because you have no multifamily experience." Okay, well, we want to get into this. How do we get that experience if we can't do a deal? And he said, Well, you know, if you could partner with somebody who has some of this experience, you know, you could start gaining experience that way. And so we eventually got connected with another multifamily operator in Indianapolis who was a syndicator. I didn't even really know what syndication was at the time. And he kind of tried to bring us into his deals. We were a little resistant because we wanted to do our own deals. But long story short, we ended up forming a co sponsorship with this operator. And we co-sponsored our first deal. So our first multifamily deal was a 214-unit C-class workforce housing project. So we went kind of big quickly and were really able to leverage his experience, his track record, and kind of learn from the inside of how the business works. And so we jumped right into it. And then we'd really never wanted to do much smaller deals after that. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us about the challenges, the lessons learned from taking on a deal like that and its size on your very first deal. Obviously, you know you went to the lender and came across your first roadblock, which was the experience piece. Yeah. You solved that by you know bringing on a partner. I'm sure there are dozens of other challenges, but maybe name a few that come to the top of your mind. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, on each each deal is provides its own challenges. Each partnership, kind of putting all the pieces together. I mean, on that first deal, you know, we knew again. We we were book smart. We'd read all the books, but we weren't street smart. We hadn't like gone in and actually done projects, and so it was a lot of uh, trusting uh, our partner who had more experience than us. But you know, it was his largest project he had done at that time, also. So we learned a lot of things, you know, such as you know, always want to you know err on the side of overcapitalization versus not bringing enough money to a deal. Really making a full budget for that value add project. If it's an older building with a lot of deferred maintenance, just assume that there's just a lot more that's going to go wrong. Be prepared to fix it. And then, you know, also, like, you know, managing uh, distributions and cash flow. We weren't, it wasn't our role in the project to in determining you know, how much cash was dis- distributed from the project. And I think there's a lesson more that our partner had to learn directly, but we learned it kind of through osmosis. They, you know, they decided the project was throwing off a lot of cash early on, and they decided to make some large distributions early on in the project. You know, okay, we could throw off 13% cash on cash. Let's go ahead and distribute that. You know, within the first year, and you know, when you're in the middle of a value add project where you're you know, doing a lot of renovations, you're doing a lot of repairs, especially again, an older property that things might go wrong. 
you want to hold on to some of that cash, you know, especially early on. And the end result was, you know, after that major two large distributions, all of a sudden we start running into issues. I think the pool cracked, you know, we had to redo the pool, just some major CapEx items that came up as surprises. And then all of a sudden we were a little bit short on cash. The project was still cash flowing, but all of a sudden we really needed to hold on to, you know, more cash to just get through the renovation. So we had to suspend distributions. And so it was a good lesson that like, you know, we don't need to be so excited to get out of the gate to make investors happy and get out as much cash on cash. Investors would be much happier just to receive that, you know, 8% preferred return, you know, for a year or two, and then we can ramp up distributions. But, you know, understanding that the health of the project and the preservation of principle and everyone's capital, that's, you know, we, we knew that that was a priority, but just what's the best way to ensure that we're protecting everybody's capital. So that was a good lesson that I'm really glad that we learned on our first deal. Yeah. Spencer, you mentioned a couple things or something a minute ago you alluded to. You don't know what you don't know, right? And there's just things that you've got to learn by doing. You can read all the books. You can listen to all the podcasts. That's great. It's a foundation for your knowledge. But you have to actually get out there and start doing something in order to learn those things that you're just not yeah. going to find those unique challenges. The crack in the pool. How do you handle influx yeah. and know, ebb and flows of distributions and good quarters and bad quarters, right? So now also I wanted to ask you, how did you come about being able to raise the capital for a 214 unit deal? Just like that challenge with the lender, you need experience, right? You know, investors want to see an experienced syndicator. You don't have any experience. So it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario, right? So how'd you manage that? Yeah, no, good question. And you know, the great thing about that deal is we didn't really have to raise really any money to bring into that project. It okay. was essentially myself and my brother. I, I, mean, I sort of raised, I didn't really raise my brother. He would be more partnered on the deal going into with to it together. And it was more about forming a long-term programmatic relationship, you know, with the operator. You know, we were coming in for a pretty substantial amount. You know, I had just sold that hops business. So I had some cash available. And so, so it was a large enough piece to kind of, uh, you know, secure a spot in the general partnership group. We also were just acting as a strategic capital partner and providing some of the risk capital, you know, providing a personal guarantee for the bridge loan and things like that. So okay. really without having to raise, you know, much outside capital ourselves or really let our partner he raise all the remaining capital. And then we did start raising capital, you know, in subsequent projects. But those really those first two projects, we were really just putting our own money in because, you know, we didn't understand. We were still learning and we weren't at a point where we felt confident that we wanted to bring, you know, outside capital that we were raising from other friends and family until we had some experience, you know, with that operator and we were comfortable doing it ourselves. What were some of your reservations going into this deal? Was it losing your own money? Was it, you know, a oh, partnership yeah. turned bad? Was it just you're not sure whether you want to be a multifamily syndicator and this is a pretty yeah. big test? Yeah, well, I definitely wasn't sure I wanted to be a multifamily syndicator. I mean, the idea was more about I want to invest in multifamily and, you know, if there's a better way to do it and if I, you know, being on the GP, there's obviously benefits getting some little bit accelerated returns. So it wasn't, sorry, I'd go back. So what was the question again? Sorry yeah. Like some of the risks, some of the trepidations going in, you know, oh, it, yeah, no, fair, so, losing your own money. Yeah. You know? So it, no, exit. So it was a, everything that you said. So, I mean, again, it was the first time we did a deal with this partner and he lived in the same city as us. I mean, like, you know, like I knew where the guy lived. We knew we had a lot of uh, mutual acquaintances, but still, you know, wiring those funds over 
for that first deal was uh, very nerve wracking. And, you know, he like made, he did a, a joke, which at the time wasn't really funny. Immediately afterwards it was, but, he, you know, I was like, you know, did you get our wire? And he's like, hey, man, I'm on my way to, you know, the Thailand right now. I'll, I'll see you. Like, never. <laughs> and I'm like, not funny, dude. Not funny at all. So, too but no, soon, it, too soon. yeah, too soon. Like, let's like get into the project or something. No. So yeah, it was nerve wracking. You know, how is this going to work? The first time you do anything is intimidating. But, you know, like they always say, the first step is the hardest. And once you take that first step, you just if you keep moving. It, it gets not always easier, but there's certainly less resistance to keep moving forward. Now, some, it seems like something you've done a good job, Spencer, constantly throughout your, your career and your life is pushing yourself outside of that comfort zone. I think that's a really important thing to do, especially if you're trying to grow, right? You're not going to grow by staying and doing the same thing you've always done mm-hmm. and being comfortable, even though that's where we all want to be, right? Yeah. And you've got a comfortable life. I'm sure you're doing good. You just sold a hops business. You could have coasted. You could have probably mm-hmm. taken it a bit easy. Why continue to accelerate, you know? And kind of talk to that aspect, if you will. Yeah, that's a good question. And, you know, I haven't always been, you know, I guess, you know, as driven and as focused by any means. You know, like when I was, you know, before I really got into real estate, you know, there were times where, you know, trying to figure it out and, you know, really too comfortable. And there's just something about that where you just kind of look at your life and examine yourself. And you're like, if I'm not, you only have one life to live. And, you know, why not take, you know, full advantage of it? And not that there's, you know, not, you know, taking some time and relaxing, that, that's part of it. But if you don't have, you know, a mission and a direction, I don't know, it's just not as fun when you kind of just think about everything. So, you know, when I really started kind of getting driven is really once we started shifting from, okay, we're putting our own money into our deals, you know, we started just bringing in friends and family into our projects. And I had this, I wouldn't say it was, you know, an epiphany, but just kind of like a flash of, you know, Investing in multifamily has helped myself, you know, uh, gain financial independence, you know, gain that autonomy. It's helped my family. And I truly believe that if other individuals knew that investing in multifamily and specifically being a passive investor in a syndication was an option, most people didn't know that that was a thing that they could even do. When they think of real estate investing, they're going to go out and buy a single family home. And if I could, you know, just kind of open this door up and help some other people by allocating themselves to this asset class, you know, I think it'd be a way that I could continue to build a business and help a lot of people. And so that really just got me focused. And then every time things get easy and get comfortable, and I feel like right now, if things are too comfortable because we haven't had a deal this year, and, you know, nothing makes one more uncomfortable than having, you know, a big deal that they have to raise, you know, millions of dollars for. And, you know, you don't know how you're necessarily going to get up that entire capital amount, you know, kind of miss that. And I'm like, all right, come on, let's, I'm sleeping well right now. You know, our deals are going well, but like, you know, I almost want some of those, a couple sleepless nights just to like, you know, kind of push you that next level. Yeah. I think that's a really cool idea that you bring up and that's, you know, maybe you're not motivated to push for yourself, right? Like you are comfortable, but you've got this like burning desire, this responsibility to help others, right? Whether that's Mm -hmm. just friends or family or your investor network or whoever, you've got this talent, this ability, this skill, and you've got this responsibility to go out and help others. And anytime I'm feeling a little complacent in my own life, like, yeah, I'm good. I'm comfortable. I'm fine. I could just coast this weekend. I kind of try to turn on that switch and think of other people. And that helps give me a little bit of spark sometimes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like you said, just those around you and then, you know, then your family also. I mean, I have two young girls. One's gonna, almost going to be five. One's, uh, she's two and a half. And that's also you know, a major driver of you know, wanting to be the best person for them 
and you know providing the life you know that I want them to be able to live. And so I know I agree the people around you I think can really drive you and push you or using them as motivation as opposed to just think about, you know, yourself because if you just think about yourself it's I mean sure there's like, you know, legacy and all that but you know what's a legacy if you're not helping people, you know. So um yeah. that's really where you could have a bad legacy as well. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And most of those bad legacies are people who are just focused on themselves and just kind of, they may say that like, oh, I'm doing this for everyone. I'm doing this for my family, but they're really doing it for themselves. And there is kind of that balance because you can get also, you can get so focused on, you know, if I don't do this, if I don't accomplish these things and nothing else matters, but then if you just do that for the rest of your life, you're only focused on yourself and what you're doing and you're not able to have empathy for everything else going on around you. So it's balance. Spencer, maybe people are out there trying to build that legacy for themselves and their family, but those sleepless nights, those stressful days, maybe don't resonate with them. They don't yeah. want to be the operator. They don't want to be the person out there finding deals like you and I do. Now, there's a path for that. And that's, you know, a more passive approach. So mm -hmm. kind of talk about the benefits of, you know, investing passively in yeah. multifamily or any other asset class. Yeah, no. And because so I'm a, I mean, I'm an active investor, but you know, I'm also a passive investor about about half of my holdings are in, you know, passive investments as a limited partner, you know, one for diversification. And also for leveraging my time, I can only do so many projects myself. And, you know, I'll tell all of our partners, I think that it makes sense to, you know, work with multiple groups. I mean, the power of, you know, investing in a syndication as a passive investor is you know, you're really taking advantage of it's a near perfect investment class or really one of the better investment classes if you're looking for passive income and long-term wealth generation because you know, you're getting all the it's you know i'd say you, know, you look at like a stock and equities you look at bonds you know stock you have some potential for growth but it's not gonna throw off much cash maybe a dividend but it's gonna be a token amount you look at bonds where you get no growth and it's still gonna throw off you know a pretty low dividend it's gonna be taxable unless you're investing in a municipal bond but with real estate you get cash flow that's much higher than any bond could pay. And it's typically sheltered by from depreciation from income tax until you sell the property and depreciation recapture. Then you also have all the growth potential of, you know, taking that, you know, fifty thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars and, you know, doubling it over a five year period or tripling it over a ten year period. And so by, you know, allocating yourself to this type of investment vehicle, you know, it's got all these benefits, but you're also allocating yourself to it, you know, a real physical asset that you know can't get cut in half. I was just looking at, you know, some apartment REITs yesterday and you know many of them got, you know, completely destroyed last year during the pandemic and they still have only re regained half of where they were prior to the pandemic. And so, you know, if you're investing in, you know, paper assets like the stock market, not that stocks are a bad investment, but just if that's what you're focused on, you know, you are totally at the whim of the stock market itself. And if you try to allocate the real estate in the fee of the stock market, you're not really investing in real estate, you're allocating yourself to paper real estate. And so being an owner through a syndication of an actual real asset, a real piece of real estate, you get all of those benefits. And there's just very few other investment vehicles out there that replicate some of the benefits yeah, and features. Sure. You know, this asset class hasn't always been available to your everyday investor over the prior to the past 10, 13 years, whatever it is. So this is a bit of a new world for many people, being able to have access to these investments, being able to invest with syndicators like yourself. 
So this is a really new and fascinating thing that maybe not everybody out there is even aware of exists to them. You know, they, yeah. they go down to their local financial advisor and they place money in a money management account or whatever and, you know, get their six or 8% on good years or average yeah. years, right? And then somebody like you comes along and says, hey, you know, here are the return profiles of these investments. Here's what we're doing. Here are the benefits. And this is like a whole new world. So it's really exciting for many people out there and it can have an impact on so many people's lives. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think honestly, a lot of new syndicators don't even know because, you know, really after the Jobs Act was passed in 2012, that kind of really opened the floodgates, you know, with the 506C and crowdfunding. And even though a lot of sponsors are still doing, you know, 506B and SEC exemptions, they're not advertising. I mean, you could do that prior. You're absolutely right. I mean, these other securities exemptions has really kind of opened up that door and allowed for people access to these types of investments were, that were just you know, out of reach for the ordinary person. And in the past, the only option to invest in real estate for you know, the ordinary person, whether they were relatively wealthy or not, was you know, you'd have to go you know, buy a single family home or a duplex, or you can invest in a real estate investment trust or a REIT. But now, you know, if you, you know, not even being an accredited investor, you, know, you can allocate yourself to institutional class commercial real estate investments that could be worth, you know, tens of millions of dollars, $100 million that you just, you never have access to an investment with that kind of scale and efficiency. And that's why, you know, we went to the larger commercial multifamily assets because there are so many benefits in the larger properties. There's so much economies of scale. I mean, you're just, you're dealing in just in a more sophisticated space with different advantages. But, you know, an individual, even if you are very wealthy and you have millions of dollars in the bank, well, you probably don't want to be fully allocated to one property. And so it gives you the ability to you know, really build a diversified portfolio tailored to you know, whatever you want to do and your goals. Yeah, sure. Well, Spencer, we're recording this in April of 2021. Take a second and just kind of talk about the past 12, 14 months, what they've been like for you personally and your business, and then you know, what you're kind of seeing going forward. Yeah. But 2020 was a pretty crazy year for us. We really ramped up our internal team and our systems and doing a lot of our own projects. Really kind of early 2019, but starting in 2020, we, you know, obviously the coronavirus happened and everything kind of got thrown on its head. We had a big goal of trying to take down you know, two of our own projects, co-sponsor another two. At the end of the year, we ended up sponsoring three projects and co-sponsoring two projects. Okay, um, we nice. participated in about $150 million worth of syndications. And we basically added around 900 units to our portfolio in 2020. And that was kind of in the face of uncertainty and craziness. And you know, half of investors basically saying, I'm not doing anything this year. And half of investors saying, I think this actually could be a great opportunity because I think multifamily apartments are going to perform well. And we've just printed, you know, three trillion dollars, four trillion dollars. Now it's six, you know, we can't keep up with how many trillions yeah. of dollars we've spent. I think there's gonna be some inflation. I want to get allocated to assets that are a hedge against inflation. And we kind of found we kind of threaded the needle as a lot of other buyers and operators kind of took a pause, sat on their hands for a little bit, and that opened up a few opportunities for us that we frankly wouldn't have been able to take advantage of if it was a normal you know, market conditions. And so this year, it's been the exact opposite. You know, we are where we would have liked to have had one to two deals so far, kind of half, almost halfway through 2021. We haven't done any deals because, you know, the market is, you know, it's expensive in the light of, you know, the face of increased inflation and trying to price that in 
in the market is really trying to figure out where the actual where well, where it is. And you know, we're seeing properties that are being bid up at least you know ten percent over the initial you know whisper price. And so it's a similar story that we're seeing in the single family home market. I mean, just not being reported on as much because you know not everyone's going out and buying big apartment buildings, but we're seeing you know large bidding wars for these assets, and it kind of comes down to a, all right, how much inflation are we going to see for how long, and what kind of rent growth is that going to translate to? Because if you're underwriting you know normal organic three percent rent growth for next year, I think you're probably undershooting. But you know if you undershoot, you're not going to win the project, so no harm done. But if you overshoot and you overpay, you could put yourself in a bad position because you know with these cap rates that are so low, you know it's an exponential curve in terms of pricing. And so just a little bit of change in someone's model, they can afford to pay so much. But if that model is incorrect, they could be left in a bad position. But then we have to ask ourselves, you know, is this real estate going to be worth more you know, next year, five years, and 10 years from now than it is today? And it absolutely is. But there's just groups out there that they're okay with a 4% return. But that's, you know, we just have different criteria and thresholds. So it's just, it's trying to adapt to the current market conditions and again, you know, skate where that puck's going and not where it is now or where it was last year. Yeah. In times like these, people's metrics, people's goals are constantly changing. Whereas, you know, traditionally, you know, so many people out there are investing primarily for cash flow with the appreciation on top. That's yeah. kind of the baseline business model. But those aren't the only two ways, as you know, Spencer, that real estate investors are paid, right? You've got hedging against inflation, which, you know, is now a really important topic in today's, you know, monetary policy environment. And then you've got obviously, you know, your principal pay down. So those are two really different factors that might have a little bit more weight going forward. Is that what you're seeing? Are you kind of starting to shift some of your goals and your metrics like that in the deals you're underwriting? I think we're definitely going to be highlighting the fact that, you know, multifamily real estate is a you know strong hedge against inflation. You know, we're going to be identifying that. I mean, you know, we always, you know, touch on, you know, like principal reduction. You know, that's certainly a component of the project itself. And, you know, some one thing that we probably don't you know, focus and push as much as we should is just the all the tax advantages to the cash flow in a real estate project because of the depreciation. You know, there's a lot of proposals right now to, you know, increase capital gains rate, to, you know, just a lot of, you know, tax changes right now. 1031 is a new hot topic. Exactly. And so I think that, you know, for most syndications, I think it honestly is going to be a, well, Getting rid of the 1031 exchange is going to add a lot of chop to the already choppy market this year if that actually happens. And now just everyone's uncertain. But, you know, most syndications aren't going to be, you know, 1031 in or out of. It's, you know, it's possible you can do a tick structure, but usually the 1031 exchange is too complicated. And so it doesn't really affect the syndication model typically. But, you know, what we point to, and, you know, everyone has to, Talk to their own CPA or you know accountant, but you know often if you're going to you know, be selling an asset in the same year you're going to be purchasing a new asset, especially if that's a more expensive asset, you're going to have significant losses in that first year from the accelerated bonus depreciation and all the write-offs from that property. And so it's not like it's not a deferral of capital gains, but it's you know it's a reduction in your income and you're creating additional losses. And so it's just another way to you know, kind of kind of soften that blow as opposed to kind of handing it all over to the tax man just yet. And then, you know, if, if you're a super high net worth individual and you're worried about having an income over a million bucks to, because then you're going to get hit with the highest capital gain tax rate if this all gets through. Well, you know, maybe you want some of that income coming from, you know, a real estate project where 
according to the IRS, and I look at your K one, they don't see an additional you know hundred thousand dollars worth of income. They see you know negative twenty thousand dollars worth of income due to all the depreciation. Yeah, sure, Spencer. Do you have a crystal ball for the next 12 to 24 months? And if so, what's it say? Or is it still a little murky? <laughs> uh, you know, I wish I did. I mean, inflation's already here. I mean, we can just look around us like the ground is moving underneath us. And we're trying to like keep up with it. I just don't know how much and for how long. I don't think we're going to see hyperinflation, but I think we're going to see elevated price levels, you know, probably over the next 12 months. But other than that, I try not to do much future predicting just because Every time I've invested in something, I've tried to just speculate and predict the future. It doesn't work. But if I just stick to what I know works and what's you know, going to throw off cash, that's worked every time. So I'm going to just keep doing that. Totally agree with you there. Uh, that's yep. not my uh, forte by any stretch of the imagination, but there's yep. some really smart folks out there that I like. There are. And uh, there are know way more about that than I do. <laughs> it's true. But you know, like last year, you know, ask anyone that was predicting anything last year of, you know, okay, what's the interest rate environment going to be this year? And everyone said rates are going to be lower for longer. We're going to have low interest rates no matter what. And I mean, the Fed funds rate is still at zero, but you know, the 10-year treasury is back at, I mean, what's at 1.6 or so. It's got to come up from, you know, half a percent. And again, most of the pundits and experts and economists last year were going to say that we weren't going to see the 10-year treasury, you know, at these levels. And so there's a lot of group mentality, I think, in terms of like predictions and you want to take all of it with a little bit of grain of salt because I think a lot of the experts are there. They're smart. They're smarter than me, but you know, nobody knows everything. And somebody's talking on TV that's usually they're promoting something. So yeah, Absolutely. Gold or silver, namely. Exactly. And I like gold, but I'm like, every time I see Peter Schiff come on just selling gold and hyperinflation, I'm like, God, you know, a broken clock is you know right twice a day, I guess. But <laughs> Well, Spencer, hey, it's been a lot of fun, good conversations. As we're wrapping up here, we end every one of our episodes with a lightning round of questions we like to fire at you. Are you up for it? Let's do it. All right. The first question in the lightning round is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? And what'd you do to overcome that? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we touched on it a little bit, you know, with, you know, just not being qualified and having that track record. I mean, having, you know, no real track record in multifamily. And the solution was, networking, partnering, and leveraging the track record of somebody else. You know, if you can partner with somebody that does have that track record or just has whatever you don't have, it's a great way to kind of get everything done. And it's usually a win-win. Yeah, totally. Spencer, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success? Yeah, and a personal habit. I think having a somewhat regimented morning routine is a big thing for me. I installed a steam shower in my bathroom a couple of years ago and I meditate and take like a steam like early in the morning every single day and it just kind of like centers me. I kind of are able to get all my thoughts organized and kind of set the plan for the day. And I know that's kind of strange, but you know, having that morning routine, getting ready to go. And so then when I get into the office, I'm just primed, ready, motivated. Let's do this. So I've never heard of a steam shower before. <laughs> it, it's the way to go. It's, it's uh, basically, it's like, it's a steam. I basically just blocked off our shower and you can buy these steam generators, but uh, yeah, <laughs> cool, it's awesome, good, it's good stuff. Yep. Do you have an online resource you find valuable in your day to day? Yeah. Well, so I have to do a quick plug. So we're getting ready to. I know I was going to maybe talk about our podcast that we're going to be releasing, yeah. but we're actually also we're going to be launching a, an entire new website, and it's basically an aggregator of multifamily research data, news reports, opinions, podcasts, okay. videos. It's going to be thegreatreport.com. It hasn't launched yet or sorry, grayreport.com. And essentially, yeah, we're going to be bringing in all the latest information. It's all going to be aggregated, curated. It's going to be updated throughout the day. And also, you know, if you were looking for 
multifamily podcasts, multifamily videos, you know, the latest research reports. We're going to be putting that all on this website. It's going to be a free resource and it should be launching in the next kind of several weeks. So kind of stay tuned for kind of announcements about the great report great. website. Yeah. How about another resource currently active? Yeah, no, absolutely. So a part of the Great Report website is we put out a weekly newsletter. It's called the Great Report Newsletter. You can go check it out, graycapitalllc.com slash newsletter. It's similar to what the website's going to be, but only comes out once a week, every Thursday at 8.30. Again, we basically search the web for any new research report that's come out on the multifamily industry, any new article related to the multifamily industry or the economy. We basically put this entire report together every week and deliver it to your inbox. So graycapitalllc.com slash newsletter. Awesome. Great. Yeah. It's so important to stay up to date with the news and, you know, kind of the change in the markets these days. So yeah, having a valuable resource like that, really important. Spencer, do you have a book recommendation? And if so, why? Yeah. So I'm going to give a recommendation for a book I just finished reading. It's by a multifamily operator, Brian Burke. It's called The Hands-Off Investor. It's a good one. It is. Yeah. I've had our whole team reading just from, you know, what it's a good perspective from the passive investor, but it's a really good overview of just how kind of syndications work in general. And so, you know, if you're interested in just kind of understanding the processes from the standpoint of a passive investor, but also from a syndicator, it's a great resource. You know, Brian has a lot of experience in this space and I highly recommend it. Yeah. yeah. Brian's been on the podcast. He's a great guy. Uh, yeah. One recommendation I'd have with that book is I downloaded the audio version. I, I love audio books, love to listen to them on a run. That one was a little heavy, a little kind of in the weeds for an audio version. I agree. So just, just FYI out there, maybe take the paperback copy of that one. I agree. It's a good point. There's a lot of graphs and it's referencing a lot of you know, different tables and if you don't have it in front of you. Yeah. It's almost more point. of a reference manual. You know, you've got to like really digest it. It's not like a story time, you know, when you're running. So yeah, yep. totally recommend that. That's the Hands-Off Investor by Brian Burke. We'll link that in the show notes. Definitely pick it up. Spencer, last question in the lightning round. If you were to go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you tell 20-year-old Spencer? I would tell 20-year-old Spencer to try to get a little bit more focused and, you know, to really appreciate, you know, the time. I mean, I spent a lot of in my 20s, I wasn't as focused as I, you know, should have been, you know, hanging out in recording studios, getting into all kinds of trouble. And so just, you know, focus, you know, about what's going to work and just kind of have a little bit more of a periphery and, and not as many blinders on. So mostly just try to, hey, Spencer, let's, let's get focused. But, Love um, it. Well, Spencer, know. hey, it's been a lot of fun. Great having you on. I'm really excited to have done this. As we're wrapping up here, is there any parting piece of advice or maybe something I should have asked you that I didn't that you'd like to leave with the audience members? You know, the only parting piece of advice I'd say, you know, depending wherever you are kind of in your journey of in real estate, whether you're just trying to figure it out or if you've been doing it, I think everybody always needs to hear. It's a matter of just keep going and making progress. And it you're not going to get wins every single day, but it's all about being persistent. And if you keep doing something, you're going to see results eventually. But you know, it's probably not going to be in that first year. And so just keep being persistent, keep moving forward. But at the same time, you know, being flexible and not being so rigid that you have to identify, you know, what's working and what's not working. So just be persistent. I love it. Spencer, hey, if people want to reach out, connect with you, learn more about you, or where are you active at, where's the best place for them to find you? Anybody can shoot me an email, spencer at graycapitalllc.com, or just hop on over to our website, graycapitalllc.com. We've got a lot of resources there. That's where you can sign up for the newsletter, join our investment club, or if you just want to Google Gray Capital, we'll pop up as well. Awesome. That's graycapitalllc.com. 
stay tuned for the upcoming grayreport.com. Is that grayreport.com? Is that right? Great. You got it. Grayreport.com. Awesome. We'll link both of those in the show notes. Spencer, as always, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. Until next time. Hey, love the Jacob. Really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Spencer Gray. Hey, I hope you got so much value from this conversation. If you want to learn more, you can find all of those resources we mentioned in the show notes. As always, for more information, resources, and to connect with me, you can do so at www.jacobayers.com. Hey, until next week, engineer the lifestyle you want. You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom, LLC, exclusively.